Let's see what the stew has in store for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, a Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk to the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by awesome Patreon backers like the captivating Chris Franklin, the charismatic Kathleen Halpern, and the daring Doug Roz. Today we have myself, Ange, along with Chris and Jared, and we're going to continue our conversation from the last episode, but this time we're going to talk specifically about superhero games. Before we dive into that main topic, though, let's ask our Get to Know a Gnome question, which, sticking to the theme, is what was your introduction to comic book superheroes? Jared, go. Um, so this is going to sound absolutely ridiculous, but I vaguely remember for my third birthday getting a Batmobile. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I recall everything else about being three, but that's the one thing I remember. And then from there on, <laughs> I started like getting into my brother's uh, old Batman and Spider-Man and Legion of Superhero comics. What about you, Chris? So I don't remember when this happened, but I was a big Spider-Man fan when I was a little kid, like three and four <laughs> years old. And I know I had Spider-Man pajamas and whatnot. But my mom loves to tell this story where in our house, because I lived in a, in a, in a duplex, uh, up to, upstairs, downstairs, a split level, I guess is what they're actually called. We lived in the first floor, three bedrooms. I took all of her yarn when she was taking a nap when she was watching me, and I tied all of the doors together with the yarn <laughs> while she was taking a nap. Because, you know, it was the 80s, so, you know, we didn't keep a super close eye on our kids back then. And uh, then I started crying like an hour later because I was all by myself and my mom couldn't get out of the bedroom because the door was tied to the other door. She had to call somebody to come and like actually cut the yarn. I've, I've seen things that refer to us Gen Xers as feral, yes. which is very true for how most of us were raised. So accurate. So accurate. <laughs> what about you, Ange? I have very strong memories of avidly watching the Super Friends uh, and playing pretend with my cousins. My one cousin who we would, at that t period of time in my life, would spend a lot of time out at, at his family's property, which was like this rolling, wooded hillside uh, country out in Wayne County. And we would run around playing Super Friends. I know I was usually Wonder Woman. I don't remember what they played, probably Superman and Batman, but I don't remember for sure. I do know that there were a couple of occasions where we did Jan and Zena, Zena and basically the Wonder Twins, <laughs> you know, but I very specifically remember where around the time I was 12 or 13, I was starting to want to read comic books because I'd like, I, you know, like we did the Super Friends thing and then my brother was getting, you know, they like automatically got my brother a Spider-Man and Hulk subscription because he was a boy. <laughs> that's what you did. And I was like, these are really cool, but I think I'm interested in these team books. And then like, oh, I was in a, in a, in a drugstore and they had a comic book rack, you know, like one of those spinny racks with all the mm -hmm. titles on it. And there was a book that said number one on it. <laughs> and I was just old enough to know that that meant something important. <laughs> so I bought it. And that was the, uh, the number one issue of the magic miniseries that told the story of what happened to her while she was gone in limbo for five years. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that was what hooked me on the X-Men. That moment was the start of so many things. Like, I was on the nerd path to begin with, but that set a lot of other things in motion. So what you're telling me is Magic's trauma is what set you on the, on the path to being a comic book nerd. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That, that's fair. That's a great story. And, and the funny thing is, is like, because I, I knew that this was related to the X-Men, I was like, oh, well, I need to read the X-Men. So the first issue of the X-Men I picked up was like, 
it was it was essentially a filler issue because it was they had just dealt with getting uh, Scott and Madeline married and they had oh, done like <laughs> Wolverine's marriage in Japan that didn't actually happen and uh, Storm shaving her hair into a mohawk and like this issue was basically a, an in-between issue where it was like the social drama between Kitty and Storm and Kitty being upset about Storm now having a mohawk and going punk and then this whole side story with Wolverine and Nightcrawler taking Colossus out to get him drunk because he was upset over something related to Kitty. I don't remember, but it was just, it was like this slice of life story <laughs> for the X-Men. And it was like, I was hooked on these characters almost instantly. There's so much to unpack. <laughs> I want to talk so much about this because that's like the middle of Claremont's X-Men run, mm -hmm. I think, right? Isn't oh, yeah. It? yeah. Yeah. You're like, that's a side story. You're talking about social drama. When I'm like, no, no, that was the actual story. The superhero shenanigans were the side story <laughs> to what the, 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 the soap opera drama. <laughs> what I meant about it being a filler issue, it was between the major arcs. I got you. That, that's, that's what I mean. I, I don't think the major arcs were actually the stories. I think the, the, the drama between the characters was the actual story in, in Claremont's <laughs> X-Men. That was, that was my joke. He wrote a soap opera, not a superhero <laughs> book, right? He really did. There was like really an extended did. period of time where you could read like almost a year's worth of X-Men comics and none of them had a single fight in their uniforms. Like everything was <laughs> nope. like street clothes and you know something just happened on the way to somewhere. Oh man, so good. That's so good, Andrew. So good. Yeah. So moving on to our main topic, uh, during our last episode about canon characters, we spent a lot of time talking about superheroes. It is one of the most common styles of games where you will see canon characters in play. Um, if it's not the players playing the canon characters, if you're in a specific universe, the, the characters of that universe will show up. We, the three of us here, also just happen to have played a session of the Marvel Multiverse role-playing game and kind of riding that high, we wanted to keep talking about superhero games. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's talk about our game last night. Well, one, you could just read Jared's review on his blog, what do I know, jr.com, because he wrote a recap of what happened. It was weird to read a recap of me running a game. So, you know, that, there's that. Which well, also reads like a Marvel comic. Yeah. Strangely yeah. enough, I'm like, wow, this reads like a Marvel comic. Weird. Okay, Jared, why don't you give us the recap of your recap for our listeners who don't want to immediately run out and find that and read it. So this kind of started like when Chris offered to run this for us. Ange and I decided we wanted to come up with an oddball pairing of heroes that would still work together, which is how we ended up picking She-Hulk and Venom for our, for our characters. <laughs> I looked at it and I was like, what the hell? <laughs> I didn't say that, but I looked at it and I said that in my head. <laughs> so Chris graciously, um, after we gave him some warning that we were going to do that, managed to uh, spin a story around that. And... Um, Overall, the, it started off with She-Hulk in a legal dispute with the Roxxon Corporation and an art uh, artifact that came out of the Savage Land and, you know, uh, Venom getting all tingly because something symbiote-related was going on and showing up at the courthouse about the same time that that uh, art item was stolen. Not to mention the Wrecking Crew showed up to try and also steal the item. Yes, the Wrecking Crew showed up. We had a nice throwdown with the Wrecking Crew. It was kind of nice because I noticed, you know, in the end, She-Hulk took out two of them and Venom took out two of them. So that was kind of fun the way that worked out. <laughs> and after we did some investigation, we found out that the, the people that were all interested in this artifact were all of the Marvel heavy hitters like the Hand and AIM and Hydra. 
and uh, Wilson Fisk's organization. So we decided to try and track down what was going on. I used one of my criminal contacts to find out where this underworld auction was going on for this art piece. We show up at the auction and realize once we get into the auction that we did not have a plan other than actually just getting into the auction. May I interrupt? Yes. We first decided to go in undercover with She-Hulk, Jennifer Walters, pretending to be... We we decided that in this universe, there's instead of, you know, uh, real housewives, (laughs) we have villainous housewives TV shows where it's all the housewives of various villains being filmed. So uh, Jennifer Walters was dressed up as a, you know, real housewife of New Jersey with the bad accent and everything, while uh, Venom was pretending to be her bodyguard and decided that since he was covering up his eye with a piece of the Venom suit with a, as a patch, that I could call him Patch. Yes, the, Just like the Wolverine character. Yes, the, the intentional joke there was that Eddie backdoored his way into one of Wolverine's stupidest disguises that he used for a long time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> what happens when you put three comic book nerds in a room and tell them to play a role-playing game? This is what happens, by the way. Yes, yeah. we were throwing so many tropes at each other. So many. At some point, um, the nerdy AIM guys realized that what was being auctioned wasn't the actual item. And uh, the actual item, which, you know, by this point in time, you know, we realized had something to do with why I was getting the symbiont tingly feeling. And we realized that it was actually higher up in the penthouse, which was in uh, Wilson Fisk skyscraper. And we had to get out. Therefore, I webbed up a whole bunch of people so that we could run and climb up the elevator shaft to the penthouse. We didn't wait for the car. No. We just jumped and climbed. <laughs> That's pretty superhero. That's uh, Superheroes are impatient. And then we had a knockdown drag out fight with the symbiote uh, version of Wilson Fisk. Which was great. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And I got to, um, I got to use knockback to throw him through a window so that he flew out the window of the skyscraper. And we got to trade some blows sticking to the side of the skyscraper. Then I threw him in a web sack over my shoulder and carried him back to the penthouse. <laughs> and she Hulk slapped some, uh, some noise canceling headphones on him and cranked up her uh I'm not sure what music you're playing for him or what song you're playing for him. Yeah, we never did we never declared that. It was just something loud. It was uh it was screechy screechy noise, static noise. That's that's what you said. The symbiote melted off of him. I caught it in an ice bucket, which was not going to hold it, and then we called Shield. <laughs> it was it was a ton of fun and it felt very comic book. Yes. I do have to say that. Now, with two two one shots of this Marvel multiverse role playing game that I've run, I've used Chat GPT to give me the scenario both times. <laughs> so that was a Chat GPT scenario. When I put in, I need a team up adventure for a Marvel role playing game with She Hulk and Venom, and that's what it gave me. That's actually that's really. I mean, I'm sure you finessed it, but that's actually a pretty good uh pretty good foundation for that those two characters. Yeah, I mean, I just I just uh added a bunch of uh details, but that's pretty much what it, exactly what it, it gave me. Start in a courtroom with a symbiote shard, and then Wilson Fisk grabs it and auctions it off with a bunch of high-end people. That was the actual <laughs> story. I was like, oh, okay, I could do that. So what what for you guys makes the essence of a superhero RPG? Spandex. Totally spandex. <laughs> if I don't see rippling abs, then I feel like I've been denied my superhero essence. <laughs> okay, I'm just kidding. I mean, I'm not really. Like, I, like, I, like, I like a good spandex costume. Those are, those are solid. In a larger sense, and I would like to talk about this in a larger sense, 
I think that in order to understand the essence of what a superhero game would mean, we have to think about and understand what we enjoy from this particular subgenre of both science fiction, soft science fiction, and hard fantasy, because most superhero um, settings have both of those elements. The hard fantasy, because there's a bunch of rules that we follow in the soft science fiction, because, you know, it's like pseudoscience fiction a lot of times. And those Venn diagrams overlap a ton. I think the primary question that I want to ask when engaging with superhero media, and not necessarily just role-playing games, is these people have amazing abilities and powers that are superhuman in nature. It gives them a lot of advantages that people don't have. So what do these people that have these abilities do with them? What choices do they make? To me, that's the primary essence of superhero storytelling. The secondary thing, the secondary beat for me is seeing the interesting things people do with those abilities. What kind of clever uses can they use their superhuman abilities for? When it comes to tabletop role-playing games, I often think, especially in one-shots, that that ladder is the more prominent thing that we care about because we like doing cool things in role-playing games. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. But the former is the thing that I tend to try to focus on when I'm playing longer-form games. A lot of longer-form games, but especially if I was going to run a longer-form superhero campaign, I would care a lot about that particular uh, theme or ideology. What about you? This is the, I'm very curious as to what you both think, especially about the things I just said, and also your own thoughts on the topic. I mean, I'm pretty much in agreement with most of what you said. I think that you can take superhero stories in a lot of different directions, and we'll kind of cover that in a little bit. But I think one of the key ingredients is the powers, is the special abilities. There is something that these characters can do that the normal people around them can't, and therefore there is either... I mean, I definitely lean towards the heroic aspect of this. So in my superhero stories, in essence, is that these characters are trying to be heroes. but again. There are there are different flavors there, but I think one of that the key ingredients is is the powers, the special abilities. I think in, in your version of the idea of um heroic superhero games, you can always then ask the question, especially in longer form ones, like what does it mean to that particular person to be a hero? Yes. And then you could talk about the different uh, angles because there's there's more than one way. I mean, we've oh, seen yeah. it. Yeah. And I think that's a fascinating question to ask about about superhero media. In fact, if those questions weren't interesting to ask, we wouldn't have as much as we do. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jared? Unfortunately, my brain like has spent like probably years of my life thinking about comic book philosophy, so I apologize right now. No, um, that's fine. <laughs> one of the things like there's obviously been a lot of other people that have made very similar points, but the person that springs to mind a lot when talking about this is Grant Morrison, and they um, talk a lot about superheroes being modern mythology. But I think one of the things that Morrison had mentioned in some of his writing that is a, an important distinction is that a lot of times that gets shorthanded to these people have superpowers, therefore they are like gods. And that's not really what this being modern mythology is. It is that it is symbolic storytelling. The people that are important stand out from other people because they wear the flashy costumes that nobody would wear on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not logical that even if you had these superpowers and you went out to be a vigilante that you would, you know, put on red and blue outfits with webs on it. But from a symbolic storytelling standpoint, Spider-Man in that instance is declaring that he is a hero that wants to make a difference in the world. That is a symbolic aspect to that story. And the other thing is that what heroes do to solve problems, it's very similar to like in mythology when people used to say things like, you know, that lightning was Thor throwing his hammer or, you know, Apollo's chariot was the sun. We want on a certain level to be able to deal with very big problems that are very complicated and hard to deal with. So when we see Superman 
fly two world leaders up to a mountain and force them to hash out their differences. That is symbolic storytelling. That is never something that's going to happen, but it is a deep-seated need in us to see that somebody could make the world make more sense if they had enough power. When Wonder Woman defeats a misogynistic telepath like Dr. Psycho, it's that desire <laughs> to... Uh, honestly, I mean, it's that desire for equity in the world. Like, he, Dr. Psycho is, like, such a perfect villain for Wonder Woman. I have a friend who runs a, a Harley Quinn game uh, is a, a recurring game, and the characters in that recurring game are Harley, Ivy, Clayface, King Shark, and Dr. Psycho. And my friend who plays Dr. Psycho, every time he does this, he says something super misogynistic, and then he pauses and he turns and he's like, I'm so sorry. So sorry. And then he goes back right to playing the character super yes. perfectly and obnoxiously. <laughs> sorry, I just had to... Oh, no. And... But that's what that's what I'm saying. Like, the, it's not so much that Superman has these powers, therefore we should see him as a god. It's that Superman is like the mytholo mythological character that is solving the problem by doing something simple and heroic in a simple manner. Not ha no, not having to go to the UN and set up you know ten years of peace talks and you know having them fall apart and try and set them up again. That's not what superhero storytelling is. It is the symbolism where there is a problem and someone who is suited to it can act on that problem and solve the problem. I think this kind of moves me to the next thing I wanted us to cover, which is that superhero stories come in many, many flavors. We slap that superhero label on a lot of things that don't necessarily go together. And how important is it for us to figure out what type of superhero story you're running or playing in before you're actually at the table i'm so sad that we moved past that last point there's so much to deconstruct with with that thing that I jared mean, just if said if you want us to move back and we can talk about it i just no. i'll just tie it into what we're talking about right now so like flavors <laughs> right flavors of storytelling it's, it's the most important question to ask when you're sitting down to play because superheroes don't mean anything it, it's the same as saying fantasy it really doesn't same as saying science fiction like cool what's your what's your flavor for instance, to uh, to to get back to Jared, Jared, Jared drops some things. He didn't even talk about the Watchmen. Yeah, <laughs> like he he's got a thing about the Watchmen. There, he didn't even talk about it. So oh, he drops okay. Grant Morrison and he talks drops Alan Moore. <laughs> he was going to drop Alan Moore into a conversation, which are two of the most cerebral. Like think you <laughs> think about it. Whatever you think about those human beings, Alan Moore. There's a lot to think about negatively as a human being, but just in general, like cerebral. Think about what they're doing, comic book writers that exist out there. I can I can give you the quick pitch of what I was going to say, it, because I would argue that as we're talking about this part of the topic, you know, saying that a superhero game is a superhero game may not mean anything, because I would argue Watchmen is not really a superhero story. It is actually a story about how superheroes would not be able to solve modern problems, but that is actually not the indictment of superheroes that people have turned it into when they try and deconstruct stories. It was actually a commentary on the 80s when you had certain political figures that were trying to make the real world seem like a comic book, everything is black and white. There are simple solutions to everything. All we have to do is this one simple thing and everything will be fine. I am the good guy because I am the, you know, I am the person that is giving the speech right now. Alan Moore was basically trying to show that if we see the real world as this black and white superhero reality, it is going to bite us in the ass. Sorry, because that's not how the real world works. It was a commentary on the politics of the 80s, not, it, not really a deconstruction of superheroes. It's not fair because he actually said that. Like, I can't even argue with it because 
as a as a piece of art, there's a bunch of ways that we can look at the at the Watchmen. But freaking Alan Moore had to go and be like, "This is what I meant when I wrote the thing." I'm like, "Come on, man, you ruined the fun for the rest of us." <laughs> I mean, I think I think that is a a a thing to like. If you are going to sit down and run a superhero game, you need to think about what flavor are you bringing because I don't like the boys. Yeah, but there are a lot of people who love that show. And like that's a superhero show. I love oh, the boys. It's a deconstruction of the, the the you know like I don't judge anyone who likes it. It is just as we mentioned earlier. I play these games to be the big damn hero. I play these games to have a character who can do the things to try and make the world a better place that I don't have the power to do. It's a superhero show because of Starlight. I, I actually I would agree with that. She's the only superhero in the show. It's just one of those things where you need to you need to figure these things out when you sit down at the table and make sure everyone at that table is on the same page. For example, several years ago, I was at Gen Con and I was at Games on Demand and we jumped into a masks game. Everyone else was at that table playing Young Justice. We had <laughs> one guy playing Superman from the Snyder Murderverse. <laughs> He's describing what his character's powers are doing, and it's destroying an entire building and everyone in it, and we're all just like, dude, because he was not on the same page as everyone else, and it, it, it made the game not as fun. You got to figure these things out when you sit down at the table to play a superhero game. Because saying superhero doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it means something, right? It means costume people with superhuman abilities that is some semblance of hard... Hard, uh, hard fantasy and soft science fiction. That is, I think, the a good a good summary of the actual mm -hmm. definition of what it, what superhero means according to the internet in a couple different places. I like three. I checked that in three different locations <laughs> before I said that. <laughs> I find it interesting that like you said it jokingly, but at the very beginning you said one of the most important aspects of a superhero game is spandex. And in the in the the late nineties, early two thousands, when superhero movies were comic book movies were starting to become more of a thing. Like in the X-Men movies, they tried so hard to not put them in costume. Like they had uniforms, but they weren't in costume. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until we start getting later into the MCU where they start embracing the idea of the costume. Peter and, and the Spider and the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, there were costumes all over the place. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, there were. But but there was still this thing in the, the early 2000s about Oh, costumes are too silly. We don't want to do costumes. I blame Brian Singer for that. That's Brian Singer's fault. Yeah. I played in games <laughs> where GMs leaned into that and they're like, oh, we're not, we don't have the silly, you know, four color spandex stuff. This is a superhero game, you know, grounded in reality. And like, that's fine. That's a, that's a style of game you can do. But to me, it's not as fun. I, I blame Brian Singer for all of that. That, that's totally his fault for making people think that way, I think. It's so disappointing that that actually became a thing. Like, who superhero stories? We can't actually tell them with the costume and stuff because it doesn't feel serious enough. Because it looks, it's too bright and, and this, that, and the other thing. I'm like, come on. Come on, folks. Well, you can take, take solace that that didn't last. Correct, because Iron Man showed us that we could do that. Iron Man's very shiny and bright and very grounded in reality. We're talking yeah. about an arms dealer <laughs> who is causing war in another country, like, with his weapons. Like, I mean, that, that, it doesn't get much more real than that. The MCU is a little bit of a punching boy right now. Go see the Marvels. It was a lot of fun. It was a fun flick. But I do think that is one of the things they nailed is, is figuring out how to do the costumes without it being silly. Because 
throughout all of the movies, they have had these characters in costumes that are easily recognizable as those characters, but they don't feel silly. This is because they, oh, man, this is like a, such a side tangent. <laughs> But it goes to what it goes to what Jared said, like about the idea of symbolic storytelling. They figured out a way to make these costumes be symbols while still grounding them in some semblance of reality, mm -hmm. and and that is that is the design philosophy that that they went with. I'm I'm pretty sure they actually said that somewhere. Somebody said that somewhere at some <laughs> point in time. It might have been Kevin Feige. It could have been some of the costume designers that were given those. I I've, read, I've listened to it on a on a, one of those DVDs somewhere. But to uh, I guess we should go back to the role playing <laughs> game. Thing. You knew we were going to do this when we did a comic book topic. I, <laughs> yeah, yep. I did. I knew this was going to happen. We're talking about what, how important is it to figure out the type of story you're running. This is why, right? Like, the things that we're talking about is why. The, the thing that you talked about, for instance, like, maybe I want to play a Justice League game. Even that could not mean anything, because if I want to play um, the Justice League story where they beat Darkseid, but they get all the Darkseid stuff, then we have to ask the question, what happens when our icons and our heroes have access to all of this dark power? What does that mean? Like, that's when we get Batman sitting on the... the um. Uh, the the oh, the Omega the the Infinity chair whatever the, what's the name of that chair Jared uh, the Mobius chair the Mobius chair thank you sitting on the Mobius chair and he can see everything that that does not go well for the for <laughs> existence like all of these people getting these uh, like access to these abilities it does not go well and it's an interesting story but it's not the same as I don't know the the Justice League story where they actually fight Darkseid when um Supergirl it's it's the it it was a comic book but it was also an animated animated uh movie. Where Supergirl first shows up and she's or shows up in the Justice League and she's one of the Furies, yeah, uh, one of Darkseid's people, and they uh, like it's Clark's job. That, that's the that's the world is cardboard um, mm. speech where where Superman's like fighting Darkseid and he's like the world is cardboard and I always have to be careful what I do, but I can unload on you, like I can I can just go full blast on you because I can't kill you necessarily if I punch you. Plus maybe you deserve to die. <laughs> Superman saying that to Darkseid probably legit. So, you know, we, we those are two very different kinds of stories. Also, let's talk about Injustice, right? Very, very mm -hmm. different kind of stories. It's basically it's basically DC's Civil War. Mm -hmm. Like, their take on the idea of Civil War. Great story, but it's not the same. So you can't even just say, like, let's play a Justice League game. Because yeah. what are your themes? What's going on there? Bringing it back to the game we played last night, one of the things I like that you did is you basically... Where are these characters in their lives at this moment? Mm -hmm. So we knew which part of their story we were playing through. You know, this is Venom after he has helped defeat Null. He's trying to be a good guy. He's trying to raise his son right. You know, he's, he's trying to do the things on the level. This is, you know, Jen after she's moved to the West Coast. She's started her own firm. You know, she's still doing her thing, but, you know, it's like we knew where these characters were and what was going on with them. This is important when you're playing canon characters, um, but I think it's also important when you're doing your own, your own creation, your own characters that you're putting into whatever superhero world you're running in. Where are they currently in their lives? I think it's really interesting because we are at a point in time when we probably have better language skills to communicate the tone of a game because there's so much superhero media versus I remember even like in the, the when the uh, the DC Adventures game came out the third edition of Mutants and Masterminds and I had a friend who had never you know really read comics and we we're trying to explain some of the tropes to him and this was not in a time when there were you know the comic book movies were quite as ubiquitous as they are now so it wasn't as easy to say this is what this type of character is like this is what you know I literally now could say, watch 
Wonder Woman and you'll see Hades, or not Hades, um, Ares. And that's what Ares is like in the DC universe. Like, that is a lot easier to say than trying to explain to somebody the whole uh, George Perez run where Ares first becomes like a really good, <laughs> you know, recurring villain for her. It's the thing about pop culture, right? As soon as, some, as soon as it becomes pop culture, like, and everybody knows what it is and it's more iconic, it's easier to explain it. Like, it's easier to explain Spider-Man than it is to explain Alpha Flight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, there you go. There's a, there's a quality distinction right there. Like, people are like, who's Alpha Flight? Uh, go look it up. <laughs> Even I would have a hard time explaining Alpha Flight. <laughs> this game is set after the fourth time that they disbanded and the third time they all died. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm talking about, right? Like, it's Peter Parker, uh, but it's the one from the Sam Raimi movies. Yeah. Oh, we all know who that is. Or it's Peter Parker. It's the one from uh, post No Way Home. Like, okay, we all know who that is. Like, it's not hard, yeah. right, right? When millions of people have seen it. <laughs> so let's move on to talking about mechanics uh, because there is a wide variety of superhero games out there that give us quite different mechanics for playing these games. How do we balance the need for the mechanics to? you know, let us use these powers and abilities in the game, but with the flexibility of the story to play out the, the story of these characters' lives, to have those those moments where it's like, like you know, I was talking about my X-Men introduction, where it's just the characters doing their thing. So I think one of the things that's kind of important for the mechanics of a, a superhero type thing, if, if you're thinking superhero as larger-than-life characters, there is a balance that you kind of need to strike between people being hyper competent, but also a lot of people that play RPGs want to feel like they're doing something. They don't want to feel like something has just been given to them. So in other words, there are times when games will tell you, well, you don't need to make a check for this, just give them the information. Sometimes that's fine, but sometimes you somebody wants to make that role with their plus 17 to science or whatever and just blow away that role so that they feel like they earned it. It's really helpful to have mechanics that give you enough room that you can work around that paradigm to where people can engage the mechanics and feel like the mechanics have delivered on the promise of what their character is. I think a lot of that also has to do with being good at the fail forward concept. Yeah. Like this is a good idea in just about any game, but it is imperative in a superhero game because even Peter Parker with the Parker luck, he doesn't fail because he's too dumb to figure things out. Pete is a smart guy. He is, if he goes to the lab, he's going to figure something out. You need to figure out what happens in a failure that still makes Pete feel smart, but then also complicates his life. I want my Bruce Banner to be able to be scientifically smart in the game, as well as be able to get up and punch a planet in the face. <laughs> this is both the Hulk and Bruce Banner need to have the ability to shine and do their thing time travel that's all i gotta say about that no i got other things to say come on time travel the thing was like time travel because he couldn't actually get the time travel thing to work because you need tony stark because tony stark actually is better at that stuff than bruce banner because bruce is all about like biological science <laughs> no fail forward there but it was hilarious great great moment in that movie um i would have felt bad if i was that character <laughs> i was like oh man i am sure that banner created an asset that Tony could then use to refine into actual work of time travel. I'm sure he did. We're, if we're talking about balancing the need for mechanics versus the flexibility story, is that, is that 
what we're still talking about? Is that the question? We're, we're yeah. answering whatever uh, question you want to answer, Chris. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't remember if the question got phrased exactly the same way. I thought it got shifted a little bit. That's why I'm, I was like, I, I think I follow the thread of this conversation, but I'm not sure. I'm a fan of using the design philosophy of the game to make rulings. So I'm, I'm the kind of person that will break down the game, figure out how it works, and then, okay, cool. I understand how these mechanics function to build powers and things like that. So if I need to shift a little bit to let somebody try a thing or do a thing, then I can understand it. Because believe me, there were like three or four times last night when we played <laughs> that I had to be like, cool, you can do that. It'll cost this, but I'm making this up on the fly because it fits inside of this power sort of close enough. And I feel like you should be able to do it. So you should probably be able to do it. Yeah, I think that's a that's a reasonable thing to like keep in mind anytime you're running a superhero game because your players are going to ask to do things that, well, yeah, you probably should be able to do that. Let's do it this way. Yeah, and Jared said there's, there's no stunt system in the Marvel multiverse role-playing game, and there's not, and that's on purpose. Um, from Matt Forbeck, it's supposed to be a very simple game. You're supposed to be able to look at the character sheet and just do things that are on the character sheet so you don't have to think about it too much. I, there was a game I played at a Gen Con many years ago, which was... Somebody trying to use, it was trying to use, I think, the Unity system to run a superhero game. And I signed up because it's a superhero game. Let's give this a try. Mm -hmm. And it was bad because, <laughs> you know, I was playing a character that was supposed to be in tune with nature and like channeling some sort of nature goddess thing. And I asked to do a thing related to that theme and like, oh, no, your powers don't do that. Seems weird. Yeah, it's like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and let everyone else just punch things because that's what everyone else here seems to want to do. I am also not a fan of just hand-waving stuff. Like, I'm not a hand-wavy game master. Yeah. I like using mechanics to help fuel the story, and I think mechanics should be used to help fuel the story most of the time, unless the GM is presenting a thing to give the players a choice. And even that's a mechanic, right? If I present you a thing and you have to make a choice, it's still a mechanic. It's not using mm -hmm. the game's mechanics necessarily, but it's still a mechanic. You make a choice. But that's my jamming style. Like, mechanics are always needed to help fuel the story. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Yeah. And my flow is use story to engage with mechanics, which turns into story. That's, I mean, most game mastering books, role playing game books, describe that's how sessions should play out once you start getting into a scene. Like, I present, you react, we engage mechanics if it, if it comes up because we can't figure out what's going to happen next necessarily, or there's like a choice point, and then we proceed forward, and then we keep proceeding forward until the session ends. And doesn't matter what game it is, but even for, for superhero games, especially with power sets that have um, sometimes edge case uses, I think it's very important for, for that to happen. So I'm not a story flexible person as far as like hand wave the story thing. Like we better engage something. There better be, if, if there's not a choice that you've had to make, then I have just railroaded you or, or just narrated at you, right? Like if there's no good choice or no way to do it, impact what's going on, why are we, why are we doing this? But that's like a generalized not just superhero thing, role-playing game thing. I don't know if this is quite the same thing. I will sometimes hand wave, like, like if the player has had a really good role on doing something and then wants to do something related to that, moving on, I'll just hand wave. You just ride that, ride that natural 20 into the next scene, you know, like, but it's like you still have them engage with the mechanics and the story together to move the game forward. So it's still a mechanical choice, right? Like, it might not be in the game, but it's in the spirit of, like, we critted, so we get the success plus. Yeah. That is a mechanic that exists in a lot of games. You're just adapting it for the game, whatever mm -hmm. game you are playing, even if it's not there. So like 
maybe not within the bounds of that game, but within the bounds of role-playing games, right? Like, those are usually the steps that I'm thinking about when I'm going through making calls on things. Like, can I use the mechanics of the game? Well, the mechanics of the game don't do the thing, so can I steal a mechanic from another game to implement into this game to make it feel right? But yeah, you just, that's exactly what you just said. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Any, any you know, final thoughts, uh, last words for our, uh, for our listeners on superhero RPGs? Um, oh man, I don't, I don't know. I burned out all of my, uh, all of my deep thoughts early on in this conversation. <laughs> oh, cool. Let me, let me make, let me make Jared angry. Watchmen is really, really good and, and literary and also overrated. I, I actually, I would not disagree with you. Oh, he's on board with me. Fantastic. <laughs> I mean, I, I also think Dark Knight is overrated, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the, the animated version is so good, though. Yes. The part one, part two. I, but I think um, I think Dark Knight is one of those things that loses even more when you don't have the context of when Frank Miller was writing it. That's true. That's true. If if you're just like looking at it in a vacuum, I agree with you. Like you, you need to like that's the thing with with doing any kind of analysis of a, of, a, of, a, of a piece of work. You have to look at the period of time which in which it came out and otherwise you're missing a lot of the stuff like <laughs> Star Wars 1977 is amazing because it came out in 1977. Yes. It's still really good. But it's amazing because of when it came out. That's that. There you go. That's that. That is my best <laughs> argument for why that matters. <laughs> I, I would say if you do have like literary interest in comic books, you should probably read The Watchmen and, and The Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, those are worth. You know, yes, they're probably overrated in the overrated in the grand scheme of things, but they are worth. They are worth looking at. On the other hand, I'm not going to tell you to read any of uh, Miller's sequels to uh, Dark Knight Returns. <laughs> Probably fair. <laughs> what, The Killing Joke? The Killing Joke's not overrated, by the way. That, that book is great. And yet, Alan Moore is not thrilled with that one. I mean, I don't know why. It's... <laughs> does he kill him? Does Batman kill the Joker at the end of that or not? What do you think? I don't think he does because... But this is the problem. Moore is not a playthings close to his best kind of guy. And because I know Moore didn't have that in his head, okay, it's hard for me to picture that as what happened. It's so good to think of it as if he did, though. <laughs> the animated version is terrible, comparatively speaking, by the way. It is horrible. Oh, my gosh. Okay. This is... Should we just do an episode on what animated things people shouldn't watch? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen and friends, you have uh, just witnessed what happens when you get three comic book nerds <laughs> on the mics together. Yes. Play superhero RPGs. They're awesome. You can read the outro now. <laughs> this show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by Mutation DNA. Finding the exact correct scientific mishap to stumble into to develop superpowers can be so difficult. Let Mutation DNA take a look at your DNA through our simple test and determine exactly what you need. Gamma explosion, radiated spider bite, cosmic rays, or orphaned really horribly. We can help you identify your specific needs. If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Orphaned really horribly? Mutation DNA? That, that we're, we're orphaning people with mutation DNA? I got some issues. I need to write a nasty letter to, to the, whoever approved mutation DNA. Anyways, Thaco with Advantage. Ange and Jared love talking about RPGs and D&D. Together they share insights into the games they're running in the campaign journal and then tackle a variety of topics that affect the game in the DM's workshop. Hey you, get out of here. I need to finish this one. They're gonna talk anyway, so might as well record it. Maybe you'll even pick up an ancient D&D factoid about a previous edition of the game that you'll never use. This is McElroy McKinney signing off from Paco with Advantage. You can find all of us at GnomeStew.com, GnomeStew on Blue Sky, and GnomeStew on Facebook. 
Gnomes, is there anything else you want to give a shout out to today? So you could go to whatdoiknowjr.com and read my summary, not only of our one shot, but various other uh, uh, reviews and uh, thoughts on different RPGs. And also um, read Super Gods by Grant Morrison, because there's a lot of good analysis of comic book storytelling in the modern era. True fact. Chris, you have anything you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'm going to go with it with a YouTube station because I'm stealing Andrew's Thunder <laughs> all over the place right now. If you enjoy literary breakdowns and Easter egg videos and and like the analysis of superhero media and some other other kinds of nerd media, there's a, a channel out there called Screen Crush. I'm very, very fond of it. They do a lot of that kind of breakdown and they have a lot of good discussion on there, too, when they have um, their editors and other people that help write those scripts jump into the to the back end of those videos. Screen Crush on YouTube. We'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, tis the season that, that Christmas ornaments are going to become a thing. This doesn't have anything to do with superheroes, but Hallmark has a Thumbershod <laughs> Christmas ornament. If you want your very own fat dragon on your Christmas tree, and it, his flames even light up, it's awesome. Oh, man. I'm probably also going to pimp this on Thacko with advantage, but, you know, we'll see when we get there. I mean, that's pretty good, Thumbershod. <laughs> So, do you guys think you have the powers to resist being thrown in the stew this week? I mean, if we just keep talking about comic book stuff, I think Angel will eventually leave, right? <laughs> or she'll just join in and she'll forget about the stew pot? Especially if we start walking that way, right, Jared? Uh, yeah, probably. Also, if we open enough doors, we can start our own clone saga. That's true. That's, that's 100% true. Maybe we should move the podcast studio away from the stew pot one of these days. 